Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors, and my co-host today is Brad Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And we have a guest today, Josh Borowski. We had Josh on episode 100. Uh, I don't even know what episode this is, Brad. Maybe like 105, let's just say. It might not be. I don't know. I'm 104, just... 105, something like that, Jeff. So if you're really close, if not. Yeah. Check, if you want to check out more about what Josh has to say and nine or ten other guests, ten I think it is, go check out episode 100. I know we keep pushing that one, but it was kind of like uh, the crown jewel of our musky podcasting history so far. So go check that out. And if you need gear for the upcoming season or upcoming year, whatever it is for you, some people have seasons. I know Wisconsin and Minnesota guys do and a couple other ones. You can go check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And you can get a bunch of gear for your musky fishing year in 2021. Everybody's getting out soon. I mean, fairly soon. I think by the time this episode comes out, it'll be, uh, we'll call it late March. So the southern Wisconsin guys only have to wait a little over, I don't know, five, six weeks probably. And Minnesota guys are a little farther behind than that, but not a ton. It's going to be summer before you know it. And I'll shift it over to Brad. He can talk about musky mayhem tackle for a minute. And he can talk about, you know the musky season because i think brad's gonna probably go fishing here pretty soon yeah actually you know we're recording this right before i'm gonna head out the door i'm gonna actually go down to iowa and do a little fishing here shortly so it's kind of a wild time of the year for uh for musky fishing for a lot of us northern guys but at the same time hey there's an opportunity i'm gonna go take a look at it so i'm gonna be doing that get through this podcast and hit the road i guess jeff one thing i guess i could tell everybody is we just released um, number four, I believe, um, of our pro staff profiles on our YouTube channel. You can take a look at that, subscribe, and you'll get notices when, uh, when we put out new content. But what we've been doing is that every two week release for these pro staff profiles, number four will be Bob Benson. Bob is a, a guide from up in the Lake Vermilion area and he does some fishing everywhere. He's, uh, he spends his winters down in Florida now. So it's a really cool one. Um, check that out. And if you have more interest in musky mayhem tackle, be sure to check our website as well as our Instagram or Facebook. Perfect. I don't know, Brad, what do you want to talk about in this intro? Nothing? I don't know. That's pretty much all I've got at this point, Jeff. I guess I'm chomping at the bit to get on the road and uh, hopefully maybe see a couple muskies. All right. Well, I don't have much else to add. Again, if you want gear, check out Team Rhino Outdoors or Musky Mayhem Tackle. And if uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about how to catch a muskie or something that you can apply to your to your upcoming season, uh, hopefully Josh is going to give us uh, some answers. So let's go dial up our conversation with Josh. Perfect. All right, our guest today is Josh Borowski. If you haven't checked it out, episode 100, we kind of got a little bit of a taste of what Josh is all about. And obviously, you know, the listeners thought it was cool and we thought he had a lot to bring to the table. So, of course, we wanted to bring him back on for a full episode. We kind of cheated him with his 15 to 20 minutes that he got for episode 100. So, Josh, we're really happy to have you on for an entire episode today. I think this is going to be a good talk. I'm excited. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm glad that you could make time. I know that sometimes this this time of year it starts to get really ramped up for everybody. You know, we've talked about it recently is... Uh, you know, your Southern guys are out fishing now and your Wisconsin guys are going to start here pretty soon. And then it's going to go to Northern Wisconsin and then it shoots over to Minnesota and then up to Canada. So it won't be long and, and we're all going to be fired up. And I'm sure that, you know, with everything that you have going on, I'm sure that this is a very busy time of the year. So we, you know, we certainly appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. Yep. Crazy times, crazy busy right now. I'm, uh, with uh, the Muskie Insider going on and getting ready for the guiding season. Uh, looking looking forward to it, though. I can't wait to scratch the itch on the water. Yes, absolutely. So speaking of the Muskie Insider, why don't you talk a little bit about that? We kind of touched on it in episode 100, and I know you guys have a couple of uh, cool events coming up. Why don't you talk a little bit about those? Well, first of all, just say uh, if you're not familiar with Muskie Insider, uh, it's, it's an online uh, Muskie publication that Nick Linder and I started uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and it's free. So if, if you're not getting it right now, I would encourage you to just visit the website. We have all of our, uh, our newsletters archived there, but if you subscribe, it just, uh, it comes to your inbox every week and it's, it's totally free. There's, there's no hidden cost or anything. Um, and, and we try to keep things really up to date. 
but anyway, uh, through Musky Insider, we, we just recently launched these, um, these virtual Musky schools that we're doing. The first one's actually coming up on March 25th, which is a Thursday. Actually, all of them. We have six classes, and they're all on Thursday nights for six weeks in a row from March 25th through, oh, I want to say April 29th or something like that. And they're all at 7 p.m. But basically, uh, you know, I'm really excited because I wrangled a few other top-notch guides that I'm going to be do, doing some of these classes collaboratively with. I know the first one on the 25th is with Luke Ronestrand, you know, and, and I'm excited, by the way, you know, for these first three because I'm doing one with, with Luke Ronestrand in open water, and then I'm doing a late fall musky tactics one with Herbie, uh, Steve Herbeck, and then um, we're doing kind of a destination one with uh, I'm doing it with Ryan McMahon on the Metro Musky Lakes. He's kind of my uh, the yin to my yang and in, in Metro guiding here uh, with muskies. And, and one of the reasons I'm excited is because I, I always like teaching people, but I know for sure, like I'm going to learn stuff like while I'm putting these together and doing them with them, just because those guys are all super good sticks. And then uh, I got three other ones. Um, one of them is is. And the other three I'm doing solo. And by the way, I just did these last year on my own. I kind of experimented with it. But the people who did them were really happy with them, felt like they got their money's worth. And so um, I definitely wanted to, you know, put them out there. Uh, I kind of just did them on my own last year. This year, I'm kind of bringing them under the insider umbrella and, and wanted to reoffer them. But I'm doing one on, uh, I call it figure eight wizardry, which is uh, both times I've done it has actually gone like three hours long, which is kind of crazy, but that's how into the details I am with figure eating. And then there's another one, which I think we might end up touching on, you know, today a little bit, just with some of the things we might discuss, but I, I call the system and kind of my analytical approach to how I break down like any body of water and try and, you know, get on them as quickly as possible. And then um, another one with kind of a funny title, the last one, which was actually the most popular one out of the ones I did last year was, uh, called catch more and bigger muskies from your couch. And, uh, it, it's basically all about like researching lakes, looking at, you know, stocking reports, analytics. Um, and also, you know, I, I go quite a bit in depth on how to find lake X's that are out there, uh, bodies of water that maybe aren't even managed for muskies, but have fishable populations. Um, and, and but it's more of a, a class on, on basically doing your homework and how to research and put yourself in a good position uh, for the coming season. And if our listeners want to, you know, get involved in this, how do they go about doing that, Josh? Uh, if you go to uh, muskyinsider.com, that's musky with a Y, uh, we actually have a, a tab right on our website uh, that just says virtual classes, and you can click on that and all the information's there and you can register. Uh, one thing I should mention, though, is that we are, I, I decided uh, to limit the class sizes and just the reason I did that is just because I know that last year when I did them, um, one of the things that people really enjoyed was the ability to interact and, uh, you know, ask questions and stuff like that. And, and uh, instead of just, you know, being, being force fed a bunch of information, it really allows you to kind of custom tailor the class to the people that you have in it. And, and so I think when you get too big, um, you know, it, it starts to become counterproductive. Sure. That makes sense. I can only, I can totally understand that. Uh, so Josh, you know, the last time we had you on the podcast, we didn't really get a whole lot of background on you before we get rolling in our, in our conversation today. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what makes you tick, what got you into musky fishing? Oh, what got me into musky fishing. So, uh, I got hooked really young. My family bought a cabin up in, uh, Northern Wisconsin near a little lake called Blaisdell Lake. It's near winter, Wisconsin, not too far away from the Chippewa Flowage either. But uh, so we had that cabin when I was a kid. And I remember, you know, being really little and we used to have campfires in our cabin it was actually like a resort where where our families bought out like the, this resort was there. and They sold out the cabins, these families and they all had kids similar ages. So we'd have these bonfires on the weekends and all these families would get together and me and, you know, the kids would be roasting marshmallows and stuff. But I just remember listening to the dad, like, talk about muskies, right? And as a little kid, it was kind of like hearing about the Loch Ness Monster, you know, just like being just totally fascinated. And I, I you know, ended up catching my first one, I want to say, when I was like seven. And that was it, man. I was just all in, like, at a really early age. 
So, you know, that's kind of where I, where I cut my teeth and, and did caught, you know, the majority of my muskies through my childhood. Um, and then, you know, growing up in the Twin Cities area, you know, we have a really nice metro muskie fishery here. And, you know, when I got into my, my high school years and stuff and was able to start getting around a little bit, being able to drive and stuff, started, you know, fishing some of the metro area lakes um, around town. And that, that's, I guess, how, it, how the, the fire all started for me. I mean, it's just I remember catching the first one and, and also my dad actually catching one before me in a canoe on a globe, you know, that erupted at the side of the boat and just about tipped us over. But yeah, I don't know. That's probably, I guess, the start of it. So Josh, do you ever go back to the that first water that you ever fished? I mean, is it something that you've reached back out and said, man, I'm going back up there. I just want to fish where I, where this all began. You know, I do. And I, not as much as I, you know, it's just, it's hard when you're a full-time guide. It's just anytime you take away, you know, it is, it's just lost revenue, right? That you can't get back. But uh, with that being said, it is a tradition, uh, family tradition. We still have the cabin and uh, I take our, our family up there, the kids for muskie opener. And, and so it's pretty fun because I, you know, got to watch my, my daughter catch her first muskie uh, casting quite a few years ago when she was pretty little and, and, and even got a little GoPro footage of, uh, of a little bit of it too floating around somewhere. So, but with that being said, I am finally, uh, this year, I think I'm going to sneak away. And in August, I got some old high school buddies that I haven't seen for a long time. And I just, uh, it's been a lot of years since I've seen all these guys. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to bring, you know, going to take two, two old pastimes and put them together. So I'm looking forward to that this year. No, it's super cool. That's really cool. So Josh, you know, one of the the cliff notes that you gave us, I got to, I got to say for any of our listeners, if they want a, uh, apparently a really detailed guide, the guide, they should look at Josh. Cause, uh, a lot of these, uh, podcasts and no, no offense to the guests or us. They're not exactly, uh, they're not very structured. Well, Josh gives us a detailed list of, uh, you know, a bunch of different talking points that we can choose from and it makes our job a lot easier. So anyways, Josh, so one of my, one of my, I want to look at is the, uh, the pink days, big fish that you have. I'd like to kind of talk about that. Everybody wants to talk about big fish. And uh, I think if you can, you know, help dial people into specific days that would be better than others for a chance at a big fish, that would be super helpful to our listeners. So I'll, I'll kind of give you the stage, Josh. Why don't you talk about your uh, pink days, big fish theory? Sure. I have these days. I mark them on my calendar. I, I highlight them with a pink highlighter. That's kind of how they they became known as pink days, I guess, back in the day. And it's just, it's something I've been tracking for oh, like 17 years now. And, uh, I guess I'll, I'll tell you this just to keep uh, your people interested and motivated to hear what I'm about to say. So, you know, the interesting thing about these days is, is there's very few of them, like where all the stars align like perfectly for you and in a musky season. Okay. There's just not very many days. Okay. But for 13 of the last 17 years, the biggest fish in my boat has been caught on one of these days. Okay. And with the amount of time that I spend on the water that, you know, on big fish water that are not those days and it still like shakes down that way. It just, it, it kind of blows my mind. And honestly, like that statistic could probably be even higher if we just would, you know, basically some of those years that we didn't catch the biggest fish, it was just because we lost it you know, we actually had it on and it just didn't make it in the net. We didn't get the happy ending. And therefore some other bigger fish we caught on some other day trumped it, you know? And so to me, there's, there's kind of something magical about this day. And also I will be the first one to say that I just, you know, cause I'm going to get into the moon here a little bit, but I, I don't necessarily think that while there's that statistic that happens, I don't necessarily think the quality of the overall fishing is necessarily better on these pink days or even on a moon day, really. I think, uh, you know, the overall like conditions and how the overall bite is, is going to dictate, you know, how the overall fishing is more. But I think that what the moon does is it, it, it does kind of help you really pinpoint the when of when they're actually going to bite on that day. Um, because it, it seems like, um, you know, for sure with pink days, it seems to supercharge moonrise and moonset even more than usual. Okay. Um, and make them more of a guarantee. And the majority of all those giant fish that I was just talking about were caught, you know, within minutes 
of moonrise and moonset on those pink days. And I just think it's something important to emphasize because I, I do think a lot of people like plan their trips or whatever, you know, and they might go, you know, let's go to Canada or Lake Vermilion or whatever on this week. It's a full moon. Well, if you go there on those days, but then you're not, you don't wake up in the morning to fish moonset or moonrise and same thing. You get off the water at sunset or whatever. And then the moon, the moon thing hasn't happened yet. You're, you're kind of, you know, missing the value of planning your trip around something like that. And, and I guess the other thing I should, you know, explain a little bit too is because i mean if you're not a believer in the moon then you know you're probably going to stop listening already but i'm going to try to keep you listening just because um you know and i got to be careful how i say this but um you know you had a guest on your show a while back and it's i'm I'm not just out of respect for him i'm going to leave his name out of it but you guys will know who i'm talking about um and it's okay i mean i talked to him personally about but it's just somebody who I respect like a ton, like just, I mean, just, I think one of the best musky minds there is on the planet, somebody who I've, you know, like a lot of the things that we, that I think we take for granted today that we quote unquote, know, I think originated with this person. Right. So I'm definitely not knocking the person and that's why I don't even want to bring their name up. But I mean, I just noticed when they were on your podcast that they kind of poo pooed the moon, you know, quite a bit. And uh, just like, you know, Basically, it seemed like the main reason for being a, a disbeliever was just that, you know, because there, there didn't seem to be any explainable reason why the muskies would be affected by the moon, right? Um, and, and, you know, when he was on your show, he kind of went through a laundry list of, of some of the things I think that he thought did, you know, increase the muskie bite or activity, right? But then kind of when, when he got to that one was like, there's not really a good explanation for why the muskies would be more active or feed when moon events happen. And so, you know, because there's not a reason, you know, then it just doesn't make sense. But, you know, when I talked to this person after he was on your show, <laughs> where I went with a, with a conversation was, was I heard, I heard your thing, you know, and, and, uh, and he actually, you know, we were talking said that someone had mentioned this pink day thing and I should, you know, uh, he should ask me about it. So we had this little debate and I'll just give you a little, a little bit of, you know, of my insight on it It is, you know, I kind of said, well, you know, it sounds like there were some things, right. That, that it was agreed upon that, that muskies, that does increase their feeding, like that, right. Like that, if you, if you have a big wind, like that could do it. And maybe it's because of oxygen, maybe it's because it blows bait, you know, whatever, maybe, you know, the barometric pressure changes, right. Um, when storms come, things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, okay, so we're acknowledging that those things seem to increase musky activity or their feeding, but like, do we really know why? I mean, I feel like we don't, you know, like we can say it's because of oxygen or bait or whatever, but like muskies can't talk. So we still don't really necessarily know that. Right. And, and I just kind of said, look, man, like when I, when I get home from guiding at night, I, I, you know, it's dark in my house and I open the door and I walk in and there's a light switch there. And I, when I turn it up, a light comes on and, and I don't understand electricity. I'm not an elect- electrician. I don't like get how that all works and how me turning on the switch makes a light come on. But I do know that when I turn that, that switch on, the light comes on and I don't necessarily need to like, you know, understand how the rest of it works to know that that's a thing. And I mean, I, I just, you know, my, my take is I just feel like when the moon goes up and the moon goes down, those things bite. I just, you know, way too many times on the water, uh, you know, sometimes 16, 18 hour days where you're, you know, you're on your 16th hour out there and it's been dead sea. And then, you know, moonrise happens and you catch three and like 20 casts, right? It's not like a, a one-time thing. It happens all the time. So you know, even though we can't explain why it happens, there's something going on there, right? You know, I've been doing this for, for over 20 years guiding and, and it just, uh, you know, you just see it on repeat. So, so anyway, I, I guess I, I just wanted to try and get everybody on board with me to buy into the idea that the fish might be, a be affected by the, the moon. Sorry, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but I think it's important to, you know, if they don't, if they're not that far, then they're not going to believe the next thing that I tell them. Right. But 
the idea is is that so if if you believe that that they that they are affected or that they could be affected by the moon you know when the moon actually orbits around earth it's it's not actually a circle which which you you would think it would be but it, it's actually like a, an oval elliptical shaped orbit uh when it's going around earth and so um, the, the moon actually at certain points in its orbit is, is very, very close to earth, you know, distance wise. And other times it's very far away. That's why sometimes, you know, when you're out on the water or driving down the road and, and, you know, you have a full moon and the moon's coming up on the horizon. And sometimes it just looks like huge, like, wow, the moon looks giant. Right. And then other times it's just like the little white dot in the sky and it looks tiny. And it, it's because that's, you know, it's such a big difference in distance you can actually see it visually with your eyes, right? So if you buy into the idea that the fish are affected by the moon, then doesn't it make sense that maybe the moon would have more of an impact on the fish when it's closer to Earth and less of an impact when it's further away, right? So that's where this pink day moon theory comes in. And so the orbit cycle, like it's basically the closest day when the moon is closest to to Earth is called perigee or perigee, depending on how you want to say it. And the furthest day away is called apogee. But it's, it's basically like a 27-day cycle, you know, to go from closest to furthest and closest again, okay? But then you have, and it's completely different from, like, the full moon, new moon, like, lunar cycle, okay? Which, which uh, I guess the other thing I should explain, and sorry, you asked the question, man, so I'm giving you a long, detailed answer because I'm, I'm a detailed guy. <laughs> um, but but anyway. Um, I should also just add that, you know, I think, uh, you know, w with the lunar cycle itself, you know, when people focus on the full moon, and the new moon, um, what makes those days kind of special versus the other ones is that, you know, and also I should add the three days before and the three days after, because those, those little seven day windows of time, the day of those two events, full and new, and then the three days before and after, those are the only days of the 29 and a half day lunar calendar when moonrise and moonset will happen within an hour and a half or less of sunrise and sunset okay and so you know if you take these two events like a sunrise and sunset light intensity change just also seem to be good times right for fishing and then moonrise and moonset are so you take these two events and then you stack them into a small window of time less than an hour and a half it seems to like intensify that window Right. Because I mean, it's, and a lot of times the, the window is the time between those two events actually happening. And uh, and so so basically that's kind of the magic of those days, in my opinion. But but so that's a different cycle. Right. you got this one wheel kind of spinning at twenty nine and a half days, the full moon to, to new moon cycle. And then you got the, the, the orbit cycle. Right. That's twenty seven days. And so you have these two wheels kind of spinning at slightly different speeds. And once in a while they hit in the same spot where it's the day of a full moon and the moon is actually at its closest point in orbit to earth too. And so that day would be a pink day. I actually have, I mean, that, that kind of gives you the gist of it. I actually have like a mathematical formula that I kind of created on how to figure out which qualifies, you know, as a pink day and which doesn't, which is in one of those classes, by the way, that I mentioned earlier, I actually teach people how to figure these out, you know, exactly for themselves. But if you just go off of what I, what I told you, you know, you'll, you'll be able to get the gist of it, right? You can, you can find all the, you know, once a month, the day, the, the, you know, the day of perigee when it's closest will, will happen. And then, you know, twice a month, you're going to have, you know, or once a month each, there's going to be a full moon and a new moon. And so when they start getting close to each other, because they'll hit in one spot and then they'll kind of line up for a month or two in a row, pretty close. And then they'll get out of sync and you might not even have any pink days for a month or two. Right. But then they'll, then they'll, they'll hit again in another spot. Right. And, and so that's basically what you're looking for. And there's something about those days and moonrise and moonset that just, it, I, I don't know what it, what it is. I mean, I know, I know there's some theory out there about like the larger, the mass of the animal, or maybe even a muskie, like the larger, the lateral line or whatever. Right. That allegedly, cause I don't, you know, I'd, not going on. I don't have any science to like show this. Right. But that maybe like the larger animals are more affected by the moon. And again, kind of like the light switch thing. I don't know why, but all I can tell you, like I said, is 13 out of the last 17 years, the biggest fish in my boat has got caught on, on you know, one of those days. And that is just not a coincidence. 
I could tell you a little bit about the light switch thing. I understand that. I am an electrician, so I know that. Oh. I know that a lot better than I know muskies. I know that for sure. <laughs> Anyways, Josh, a lot, a lot of information. It definitely, you know, people need to subscribe to the Moon Theory, which I know exactly what guest you're talking about, and it raised eyebrows all the time. But a lot of what he says is very, very um, knowledgeable, and so, it, and he opens up a lot of eyes. So I guess you got to kind of take everything with a grain of salt that way. Oh, for sure. I think I might have won him over, though, in my conversation. I'll have to, I'll have to ask him, uh, follow up with him this year. Well, that's good, because I hope we get him back on the podcast again before the season starts rolling, and, and then, you know, we'll have to maybe see if you did if you did win him over. I mean, you make a compelling argument. Yeah. So, Josh, how many of these days do you think there are in a season? Because it sounds like you might get, you know, back-to-back months where it is, and then you might not get it for another couple months. So you may only get, what, like, three, four, five shots at this per an entire season. Is that right? Yeah, they kind of happen in the span. And actually, I'm trying to find, you know, if you if you give me a second, if it, you know, I'll actually give you all the days for this season. I just got to pull them up on my computer real quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. I think last year there were roughly 30 total days, but they're, you know, and I didn't count this year's. So there's a good, a good number of them. Brad, I kind of like it when guests take over the show. It makes our job a lot easier. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. They don't come to they don't come to listen to me and you. They come to listen to these guys. Well, they don't come to listen to me. They may come to listen to you, Brad. <laughs> yeah. I know for sure they do come to listen for Carrie. That's that's a hundred percent. Yeah. I was hoping that she could jump in today, but yeah, she's trying to get some stuff out the door quick. <laughs> yeah, I get it. It's a rough time of year. Mm-hmm. All right. Here they are. Looks like there's 33 this year. If, well, granted, actually, it would be 33 minus, it would be 26, actually, if you're going Minnesota season in Wisconsin, because the last seven days are actually the first seven days of December. That season's closed for so, us. But. So once they line up, they probably line up for multiple days in a row. It's not necessarily like they only line up one day a month or one day every Right. Two months yep. or whatever. So like in June, it's like, uh, you know, basically the most pink days you could have in a row would be seven. Okay. And that would be like if the stars aligned perfectly where those two events actually happen on the exact day. Once they get off by a day or two, I kind of have like a mathematical formula, right? Like whether they're close enough to matter. Sure. You know, but, but, uh, but yeah, so you know, the most you could have, you know, in a month would be seven. And, and if you did, then the next month you'd probably line up pretty good too. Like there might be like five or something. And then, you know, and then maybe the next month it, it would be less. It might only be two. And then the next month it might miss. Okay. So Makes sense. It, look, it looks like every month there's some, but like some, there's a couple months where there's only two. So Josh, you know, in the deer hunting world, there is the deer hunters moon guide, which, uh, provides you know your moonrise moonset all of those different peak times but with that they also have what they call the red moon days and those red moon days i'm i'm really curious if we took that dial i mean you can buy a dial i think they're like 25 bucks or whatever and Mm -hmm. you go to the calendar date and then from the calendar date it'll tell you what times of the day that you should be sitting in the woods i have never used it in the fishing world because I'm, I'm always, I use the John Alden night program, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I kind of have my own little feelings on what we're talking about here. And I, I agree mm-hmm. with you that there definitely is some key points, but I'm, I'm really curious if this dial, I'm going to have to order one and then talk to you at some point and see if we can't translate, you know, are they providing the same information that maybe you're already putting together as well? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you asked that. I actually had somebody reach out to me who heard me talk uh, about this, you know, at some point in the off-season here, and, and they asked the same question and mentioned this dial. So, um, you know, and I guess I would need to know more about, I mean, we could, I could just give you the days and we can, you know, com- compare them. Um, but I, I'm wondering what they're, you know, I mean, obviously it's based off the moon, but I'm wondering if they're, you know, what other factors they're basing it off of. And by the way, with the John Alden night thing too, like everything I'm talking about, I, I, it still ties in with that because I mean, basically, you know, I think that for the most part it works. I mean, there, there's one little variation with the, 
quote unquote inland tides. But, but for the most part, I feel like the minors and majors, you know, line up with moon overhead and moon underfoot and moon rise and moon set. And I guess the only like thing that I would maybe like somewhat dispute, because I still look at the John Alden night tables too, right? If there's just any time the switch might go on, for sure, I just want to make sure at a minimum we're not taking a break then, right? <laughs> we want to be fishing hard. Um, but but I just, uh, I guess that I feel like a little bit more when we get on those days around the full and new moon, that I feel like what they would call the minors, in my opinion, would be more like the majors and maybe not as far as the length of time that they go, but as far as just being maybe more significant windows than, than overhead and underfoot. But again, you know, even with overhead and underfoot, if you believe that that affects them, then the distance thing probably still comes into play with those as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I guess as musky anglers, we all try to utilize every tool that we potentially have in our pocket, right? And so, I don't know. I'm really curious about this pink day deal. I know it's been a long time. I can't remember what year you started doing this, Josh. Can you do you remember back? I remember the first year I actually talked about it. You know, I think I, do you remember when we used to have, like there was that era and I know you were there, Brad, because I, I, I have a, I don't know why I have like this vivid picture of you, like standing at this expo, drinking a wildlife energy drink. Do you remember that, that era? Uh, yeah, I remember. When, yeah. And uh, it, it was, you know, for a while there, there was a, there was like a second musky expo, like those extreme expos that they had. And I was doing a seminar there and, and it was a big group of people too, but that was like the first time that I talked about it. And I, you know, went way further out on the limb than I probably should have back then with only having like, you know, three or four years of like just my own anecdotal data to back it up. But I basically told everybody in that audience that I said I was going to make a prediction. And I want to say that I said there was going to be like, five 50 pounders caught on this week. And I picked a week in November. There was pink days out of the season. And I said, you know, which is a, is a big statement to make in Minnesota, there's going to be this many 50 pounders caught. And I want to say, I said five, but, but anyway, uh, you know, kind of, kind of just put it out there. Right. And which is bold because a lot of years, like there might not be any 50 pounders caught. Right. But it, it happened. And the cool thing was some of those 50 pounders got caught by people who were at that seminar and that's how I know they got caught because they actually sent me the pictures and reached out to me. And then there were, you know, a couple that were more widely publicized in the magazines and stuff like that. And, and that's when I think it kind of got my attention. And then, then that just, you know, encouraged the whole idea more. And I, you know, it's something I've talked about on and off over the years, but every time I go to a Muskie's Inc. chapter and talk about this stuff, I, I will always get like, it, you know, somebody who follows up with me afterwards, and it's almost always a guide that was in that chapter, because they're usually people that, you know, catch a lot of fish, and they keep really good records. And I've had a bunch of them reach out to me, you know, and be like, dude, I think you're onto something. Like, I just went back and checked all my biggest fish. And, you know, like, they're, they're landing on, the, you know, these days that you talk about when you talk about how to figure it out. So, you know, that that's kind of, I guess, how far it goes back. When, whatever year that was uh, at that extreme show, it was the first time I think I kind of publicly talked about it. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, and that's been quite a while. I'm going to say 2005 ish, 2006, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. So I think right now, what I'm kind of thinking is you need to write a book, Josh. <laughs> well, maybe it's, uh, I'd love to do that sometime. Just uh, got a lot of other irons in the fire at the moment. <laughs> I totally understand. But, you know, I, honestly, I mean, if people could utilize this, it definitely uh, is something that I think people would go for right away. So Josh, one of the other bullet points we talked about was there's, there's a bunch of them, but they all relate back to decisions. And I know you have some thoughts on many decisions that you make throughout the course of a day. And honestly, I think it's weird because for me, I have gone, I've gone and I've thought about decisions a lot on the water because I've made a decision to go to... I don't know, X, Y, Z spot. Like I'll be like thinking in my head, okay, do I go fish that spot or do I go fish this spot? And for whatever reason, however you decide you fish X spot, you catch a fish. And then I always think to myself, man, what would happen if I would have went to 
you know, whatever, Z spot, would I have caught a fish? Mm, maybe, maybe not. You know, I'll be, uh, let's just say I'm taking a trolling pass I've, and we did it. Mo- I, I spent one season where I literally just trolled because I want to learn how to troll and I trolled an entire season and, you know, we would take an outside line and, and then, uh, you know, we'd be, get to a spot and be like, okay, are we going, you know, to this to this break line over here to the right or are we going to this break line to the left? We make a decision, boom, we catch a fish. Okay, well, well what would happen if we would have went the other direction? So those are kind of what we're talking about, decisions that you make, and everybody does it on the water every day, whether it be baits, clothing selection, whatever, spot selection, speed. Why don't you talk a little bit about all those, because I know you have thoughts on on all of those things I just mentioned. Sure. You know, I, I guess I'll just start with, I mean, and that was a great example that, that you gave, just right, like some just decisions that you made, right? And those ones had happy endings, but you know, you don't, you don't know sometimes when you didn't catch a fish, there were decisions that probably, right, if you would have went the other way, you would have caught one, or maybe you would have caught more or a bigger one somewhere else. And the interesting thing about fishing, and really this is about like life, like this kind of like concept even started, you know, for me back when, uh, you know, I used to do, uh, I used to work in the school districts and I do trainings with, with, with staff. We work with, uh, you know, kind of specialized in working with kids with behavior disorders and stuff like that. And I, and I tried to just drive home the point, like, hey, like anytime like you interact with a kid or really just anybody, like your, your wife, your kids, your friends, uh, you know, people online, which would be a really good place to drive this point home on Facebook and stuff. But I mean, anytime you interact with anybody, like there's only three possible outcomes, right? Like your relationship with that person is going to be improved. It's going to be damaged or it's going to remain unchanged, right? Like those are the only three possible things. And how you, like the decisions that you make are going to, you know, whichever way you go, you know, or what your intention is there is going to kind of dictate which one of those three things happen. But, you know, the same thing happens with fishing, right? Like when we go out there and you, any decision, like with your trolling pass example, right? Like you can go, you know, you can go this way or that way or whatever, but depending on what way you go, you either, you know, your odds just went up or they went down or they just stayed the same. But that the really interesting thing about like fishing versus relationships is I feel like uh, with fishing there, I, I feel like there's not that many things where the decision that you make actually just keeps your, your odds of catching a fish, like just the same, like, you know, it, it, it kind of goes one way or the other, which is just kind of blows your mind, right? How just every little thing that you do out there is either, if it's not helping you, then it's hurting you. Um, you know, and to, you know, to, to give you some examples, I know I, I'm going to kind of skate through this kind of quick, this part of it, just because I feel like, uh, we, we kind of went in depth a little bit on this on, on your hundredth episode podcast. So if people want to hear more deets on this, they can always go back and check that out. But, you know, last time you guys asked me about like, you know, a lure that, you know, that was impactful, in, like the way that I fish now. And, 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 you know, I won't get into all that, but basically I just got into how I now have this process that I use to break down the water out there. And, and I kind of get into like, just, you know, just if you, if you have three people in the boat fishing, okay, three, your, you and two of your buddies fishing and you all are throwing lures, like the order that you fish those three baits in is going to give you a completely different outcome. Like at the end of the day, it matters. Right. And, and, um, and, and in the, and I'll just give you the end of the story. I kind of went into detail as to why and kind of why I've settled on what I think is, you know, I think the, the best practice the majority of the time is to, you know, always fish as fast as you can get away with. And so, you know, if you got those three guys in the boat, the person in the front of the boat should be throwing the fastest presentation and the person in the back should be throwing the slowest and the person in the middle can be anywhere in between. And then the same thing, you know, applied to hooking percentages, right? Um, you know, fish with the best hooking percentage bait that you can get away with and still catch them. So again, that puts your best hooking bait in the front of the boat, your slowest, poorest, you know, slowest, most erratic, poorest hooking percentage bait would be in the back. I know I kind of did that quickly, but if you want to, you know, get into the why of that, you know, you, you can take a look at that other podcast we did because I don't want to repeat myself too much. So, I mean, that's an example, but, you know, even like the examples that you gave with, you know, you go to cast a spot or, you troll a spot. It's the same thing. Like even if you fish the same eight spots, like every time that you go out there, like you, you're just the order that you fish those spots in is going to, going to matter. 
you're not going to get the same result, like as far as the number of fish that you catch. You know, if you had, you know, eight clones of you that could fish every which way out there at the same time in the combination, it's just not. And so I think just, you know, thinking about that, I'll give you one example of like how that, that particular situation could matter. There's more. And by the way, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about are things that I go more on in depth on uh, in these classes that I was talking about earlier. But, you know, so just the, the, the spot selection, right? So, you know, your wind direction, right? It can affect, you know, which spots light up and when um, and where the more active fish are, okay? And wind can vary throughout the day in direction, okay, and intensity. Um, so, again, the order that you're fishing your spots in matters there. But then, um, and this is like a little tip that's kind of included in this other one that it's something that's really helped me a lot, especially on like flat sunny days. And especially when we get later into the season into you know, late September, October, like as the day starting to shorten up, the angle of the sun is like really changing a lot throughout the day, you know, and in the summer, it's like, you know, it gets way up high in the sky and directly overhead. But, you know, when you get towards fall, it actually, you know, it kind of rises in the east and then it feels like it doesn't get very like there's not very much time where it's directly overhead. It just kind of swings around the southern horizon, you know, and then eventually sets in the west. And so um, some days when we don't have cloud cover, you know, or wind, I- I've just found that like kind of chasing that angle of the sun throughout the day as far as choosing the order of the spots that I fish in. Um, because as that sun swings around 180 degrees over the course of the day, you know, different weed lines and structures are going to have shade um, in them. And a-, a lot of times I just find the bites, you know, like those fish are more willing to play sometimes when you, when you're fishing a, a piece of shade versus, uh, you know, the direct sunlight. Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of chase that sun, you know, throughout the day with, with what spots are, you know, getting blasted and which ones are, you know, providing some, some shade. One of the questions that we get quite often actually from listeners is when do you change baits? And so you were talking about the fastest, uh, the medium to, whatever they kind of want to do in the middle, and then the, the poorest hooking percentage bait in the rear, which would be you in most cases guiding. So when do you make a change on bait selection, Josh? What, what's your methodology there? Well, I mean, the tough thing about musky fishing is I feel like a lot of times if you're going to be real about it, you, you might not know whether something's working until you've done it for like four to six hours, right? Because I mean, that usually that's like a lot of times, especially on pressured water, that's how often, you know, the windows kind of open and close. Um, but I, I'd say it, it's, that's kind of a hard one for me to give you like an exact on because I, I, uh, while I have these kind of processes to like, you know, basically if I'm going in with no knowledge at all, I'm very disciplined in all of this because there's processes to, you know, like the spots you choose and every, you know, and everything else too, like the types of structures, as far as like what I've told you about so far is the patterning, just the presentation, but then there's ways to try and pattern what type of structure, right. That you're, you're fishing too. But I guess I, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, but there's like little hints, like sometimes you can cheat a little bit, right? Like if you, if the conditions feel really juicy and, you know, especially if you just fish through moonrise or something, <laughs> conditions are good and you didn't score, well, then definitely, you know, we're going to do a reset on whatever we're doing because, you know, I feel like somebody caught one somewhere and it wasn't us. Uh, but, you know, I guess that just to maybe give you a, a general answer is, I mean, I'm shifting like that. That process doesn't really change. It's going to be fastest to slowest, best hooking to worst hooking. Um, but I'll, you know, play around with colors that like plug and play in there you know, over the course of the day. And it just kind of depends on how confident I am with what's been working in the conditions that we have. If I just, you know, if I'm feeling like it's just a window thing and, and I'm really confident about what we're using, I mean, things might stay very, fairly welded until we, you know, but basically the idea is you start making fish contacts and then that's when you can start to shift, right? So if you, and the other thing I want, I should mention that I think is valuable in all this is like, follows can lead you down the wrong road like a lot of times so obviously they're they're important uh but you know if i'm going to start really jumping to conclusions with with how we're fishing with baits and when we're fishing it needs to be based on bites i want a fish to actually clamp down on a bait because there's some baits that you know that fish will follow all day long <laughs> you might not ever get a bite on it. It's, it, it and those are great sometimes for locating fish 
but you know, you, you gotta, you know, recognize that that's, you know, not, not flipping the switch. But if, so say we get bid on that bucktail going fast in the front. Well then, you know, pretty early on, I'm probably going to like my, and I don't want to give away too much of like, if you do my whole one class here, but you know, like then I would probably double up on those bucktails once we got a bite, whether we caught it or not. Right. And then I start to, then I kind of the next step in the process is refining what the most dominant color is once you figure out the dominant bait. And so if we were able to double up on those bucktails, then basically whatever the person in the middle was throwing would maybe shift back a spot to me and my slowest, most porous hooking bait would come off because, you know, see what I'm saying? So we start to like kind of cheat that way. But, you know, if it's one of those days where, you know, the bait in the back of the boat gets bit, well, then that might be the fish telling us we need to slow things down. And then sometimes I'll still keep one in the front you know, fast or maybe, you know, it's relative, right? Like we slow them down up front too, but it's still the fastest out of the three and the best hooking, but maybe the middle person's bait starts to look a lot more. Well, I mean, if I get bit in the back because I'm guiding, I'm always just going to take that off and pass it up anyway, which is just going to slow us down, you know, to uh, to an extent anyway. But I don't know if I answered your question, Brad, but that's about probably about as, is, you know, too many, too many variables to really uh, give you a finite answer on that one. Yeah, I, I can't argue. I mean, it's just something I brought up just because we get asked that quite often. You know, when do I switch baits? And, you know, it's a challenge for every angler, I think, and even myself. I know I one of the things that I always bring back to it is I'm going to, for sure, keep one of the baits that caught yesterday out in the water until proven different, you know. So it's mm-hmm. th- something to get us consider as well. Right. And also, I mean, how many people do you have in the boat too? Right. Cause I mean, I'll say that, I mean, I very rarely get to do this anymore, but if I, if I was fishing by myself, I sometimes, if I, you know, I wouldn't be afraid to fish, you know, the same spot three times in a row with three different baits <laughs> just because I can't, don't have three guys. Right. So, uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of variables. That's valid. And I think also you can approach things, you know, speed, in my opinion, speed is, probably only number two to, uh, to weather. And so, I mean, even if you don't change baits, there's times when just doing that speed change can make that bite actually happen as well. Totally agree. Right. And, uh, and again, that's why it's nice when you have multiple people, because you can, you know, sometimes we'll even play with that idea too. It's like, you can, if you've got a hot color of a bucktail or whatever, you can, you know, you can play with the same, basically even the same bucktail being fished at two different speeds and see where that gets you, see if there's a preference. Absolutely. So Josh, one thing that, uh, some of the guide buddies of mine, we kind of joke around is, you know, what side of the boat we cast off, you know, cast on. And I know I have a few guide friends that definitely have a opinion on this. Why don't you weigh in on it? Cause I know that you have an opinion on this as well. I do. I have a fairly strong one, uh, but I, I, I'll just I'll try to use logic here again to break it down because I, I think it's another great example of like, you know, who would have thought like that, you know, does it really matter which side of the boat, you know, you fish off of? Could one side increase your chances and one side decrease? And, and in my opinion, it kind of does. Um, and, and just two like factors that I'll like bring up that I, I, I feel like firsthand I've just noticed is just one first I'll just say, I think that the correct side of the boat that you fish off of depends on the hand that you reel with. If, you know, the majority of people reel with their right hand. And so if you're one of those people, in my opinion, and I'll explain why in a minute, I feel like that the port side or the left side of the boat is the optimal side to fish off of. Um, and if you, if you reel with your left hand, it would be opposite. So I'm just going to explain it from the right-handed version. So if you're a lefty, you just reverse everything I'm about to tell you. But, uh, you know, basically, um, and again, this was, you know, goes back to, uh, you know, my, my job working at the schools is, you know, we'd work with some challenging kids and some of these kids could be physically aggressive, like towards the adults, right. That they're working with. And so, you know, I had to train staff on some, like just some basic personal safety techniques. And, and, and one of like the things you learn if somebody grabs onto you like a kid or whatever, even if like, maybe this will help somebody <laughs> to get attacked on the way, on the way uh, back from the boat ramp or something. But you know, if someone grabs onto you, like grabs onto your arm or whatever, like w- whatever you hold on to, you know, maybe you're drinking a cold one right now, listening to this. And so even if you're holding on to a beer or, or a bottle of water, 
there, there's always going to be kind of a strong, uh, strong point to your grip in a weak point to your grip. And if you just pick up like a soda right now, uh, if you got one in front of you or whatever, it could be a hammer if you're at work, but just anything, if you just hold it in your hand and look at your hand, okay, when you're holding on to something, there's, there's going to be that seam where basically the gap between your thumb and your fingertips, right? Um, if it's something that's larger in circumference, like they won't even be touching, there'll be an opening there, okay? If it's something that's skinnier, your hands might wrap all the way around, but that's still like where the opening is. And so if something, you know, if I tried to pull that beer out of your hand, you know, the, the easiest way to get it out would be if you had, you know, your hand twisted, you know, that opening facing me, I'd be able to pull it out of your hand, no problem, okay? Um, and it's just the same thing with your fishing rod. So when we hold onto our rod, it doesn't matter whether you palm the reel or you hold your foregrip, there's a strong point and a weak point to that grip. And when you, if you reel with your right hand and you fish off the starboard side, the right side of the boat, the, or AKA the wrong side of the boat, in my opinion, what happens is that weak point of your grip, that opening faces the fish. Okay. And so, and I'm sure we've all had this happen to us at some point in our musky career. I know I've had it happen to me. You, you know, you're set up that way. You're not realizing it or thinking about it. Right. But, you know, you, you get hit, right? You get rocked by a fish and it just, it almost feels like you're, you know, you, the rod almost got pulled out of your hand and you usually don't get a very good hook set if you get one at all. And a lot of times it results in, you know, a lost fish and it could even be a lost rod if, you know, depending on how little you were paying attention, but it's basically that's happening because that weak part of the grip is, is facing the fish. Now, if you reel with your right hand and you're fishing off that port side, what happens is that weak part of the grip faces towards your body. The strong point of the grip faces the fish. And so, you know, especially guiding for me, because I'm always, you know, I got five different screens I'm looking at, you know, in my boat, plus two other people's baits coming in for follow. So there's actually just little tiny windows of time where I'm actually paying attention to what I'm doing with my bait. But, you know, even if I'm, you know, focused on all those other things, if I get hit and I'm fishing off that side of the boat, the fish actually pulls the rod into my hand instead of out of it. It pulls it into the strong part of my grip and then your hand just comes away from your body and then your natural reaction is just to come back and hammer them the other way. So just on, on hook sets and hooking percentages alone, you know, I think that, that it's beneficial to fish off that side of the boat for that reason. And then the other thing that I think it actually can play into is, you know, is your figure eight technique because, with that example I just gave you, if you're reeling with your right hand and, you know, that strong part of your grip's facing the fish and you're cut, the boat's moving forward as you're kind of meandering down the, whatever you're working, the structure you're working, right? The forward movement of the boat is basically kind of helping accelerate as you, as you come towards the boat and you kind of do your boat side sweep along the side of the boat before you turn it away for the figure eight. It's kind of helping pick up, you know, one, it kind of helps minimize any mistakes that people might make there. But two, it's just, you know, generally you don't want your bait slowing down or stalling out there. That's usually end of, end of story with the following muskie. So um, it just kind of helps, you know, increase that speed up. But, but where it really starts to become more of a factor, and I never even thought about this, but just one time I was fishing with somebody and they were just, it was their boat and they were set up that way, right? That we were fishing off of that side. And I was just like, I was noticing, like, I couldn't put my finger on it at first, but like, man, my figure eights are horrible. Like I just, you know, I'm very particular about them and I could just, I couldn't figure out what was going on, but you know, a big part of it was just that, you know, now what was happening is as I was doing that left to right sweep, I wasn't going against the grain of the boat. I was going with the grain of the boat. And so the, the, the forward movement of the boat was actually slowing down and stalling out my bait, even when I was trying to really trying really hard to make that an increase in speed, you know, it, it was, it was just hurting my figure eight a lot right there. So, so those are just two instances where I think that, you know, fishing off the side of the boat can matter. And regardless if you agree or disagree, I'll also just add, I think it's important to have a side of the boat that you're casting off of, because, you know, it's one of the many things I cover in my figure eight class, but even just, you know, your foot placement and where you stand in the boat matters. You always want your toes as close to the gunnel of the boat as you can get, which means you don't want to want rods there or loose baits, right? Uh, to, to be stepping on or keeping you from getting close to the edge. And so, you know, whatever side you, you know, you, you fish off of, you know, you can put all your loose rods and, and other stuff on the opposite side of the boat. So they're not hindering your figure eight. 
there is one person I, I agree with you completely. I always fish off the port side. Um, and I, my boat is set up and rigged that way so that I can fish off that port side. But there's one particular guide that I think of that I've fished with a ton. And that was Jason Hammernick. He would potentially fish out either side, depending on the piece of structure. And I always found that interesting. I mean, it, it's kind of cool that he was able to switch back and forth, but all of the the thought process that you've put into fishing off the port side, he would agree with as well, I believe. So, you know, every piece of structure, I guess you have to look at it differently. Generally speaking, I would say 99% of the time I'm out the port as well. Right. And there might be a few, you know, exceptions. Uh, I, I mean, just the one that I think of sometimes is if we, if we mark a fish on side imaging or something off the other side, you know, we might fire a cast out, but I always tell people like to be careful with that angle be, you know, like you, you can kind of cheat your body a little bit, but, but honestly, a lot of times for me, I still end up just scrolling that cursor over and putting a waypoint on the fish and then doing a donut around it, actually casting off that, <laughs> that port side. Well, that right there explains the value of what you think it is. And I, I appreciate that. I, I can't argue with you. I just, I'm way more comfortable off the port side. The, the yeah. physical aspects of the sport and everything else. So totally yeah. makes sense to me. So Josh, one of the other decisions that people make on the, uh, when they, when they jump on the boat for the day is clothing. I think sometimes they're unaware of the decision until they show up on the boat. And I know much like, you know, you, you have a very specific process and a very logical reasoning behind all your decisions that you make. Why don't you talk a little bit about clothing? Cause I don't think that we've ever talked about that impact on musky fishing on this podcast. Sure. And, and I know I'll have some critics with this too. So, uh, because whenever I talk about clothing, uh, and, and how it could possibly like impact or increase or decrease your, your fish catching chances, I, I will always have a heckler in the audience when I talk at seminars and it's always some guy will raise his hand and he won't ask a question. He'll just tell me, right? He'll be like, well, I caught a 15-incher, you know, in the figure eight, and I had a blaze orange snowmobile suit on, and I was wearing a headlamp. So, therefore, it doesn't matter what you wear, right? And and I'll kind of look at him, and I'll be like, it didn't matter for that one. (laughs) Like, you know, and I'll say, look, man, like, I mean, I, you know, all this stuff matters, right? It can help your chances, but, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you. Like, sometimes I'll get people in the boat, and they'll, like, I mean, do everything wrong that you could possibly do. And somehow like the fish is just so aggressive. It just wants to be caught so badly that you can do no wrong. Right. But we all know that the majority of the muskies do not act that way, or they would be a lot easier to catch. They'd be pike basically. But, but anyway, um, so when I get that heckler, kind of the way I'll usually try to win them over is, which is probably just a good place to start is I'll just say, you know, to the, to the group when I'm doing a seminar or whatever, I'll be like, all right, show of hands. How many of you have been musky fishing? And at some point in your musky fishing career, you know, you have a follow come screaming in behind your lure and, you know, it gets to the boat and right when you go to make a move, uh, for your figure eight technique, the fish turns and flares and spooks at the side of the boat. Who's had that happen? And, you know, of course, any honest person's hand goes up, which is pretty much everybody, right? Even the dude, even the, the, the blaze orange snowmobile suit guy, right? His hand goes up. So I'm like, okay. So I say, all right. So how many of you think that since that fish flared, when you moved, your movement might've had something to do with spooking the fish. Everybody's hands go up. And I'm like, all right. So how many of you think that if the fish couldn't see you move, <laughs> you might be less likely to spook it and have a better chance at catching it and everybody's hands go up. And that's why I think that in certain situations, what you're wearing can matter. So, and this is another one of those things, like, uh, you know, if you ask me like how far it goes back, it goes back a long ways for me, like way, way back, like probably 20 years. Like I, I was looking at my musky fishing pictures, you know, uh, from a season and, and I, you know, I had a lot of improving to do on a lot of things back then. Right. But it was just interesting because I, I was looking through my, my fish pictures from the season and I noticed that, you know, several of the fish that I caught in the figure eight that year, I had on this light blue shirt. And it was a shirt that I didn't wear very often. So I thought it was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And I started to think, well, 
I wonder, you know, like, could it, could I, could I possibly be, you know, and it makes sense, right? Like more camouflage, like would it mask my silhouette with the sky? If I had something on that was light blue and kind of matched the color of the sky a little bit, I, maybe my, my silhouette, and my movements wouldn't be as detectable. Right. And so that next year, I just kind of decided to play with it. And my buddies teased me so bad, call me little boy blue and everything else. Right. But I, but I still, I'm, I'm not, I haven't changed it, man, to this day. Like I, you know, the majority of my shirts, I probably got like 20 shirts I wear fishing and almost all of them are light blue and gray or shade, somewhat shade of them. Right. And I, if it's, you know, supposed to be overcast, I'd go with gray and, you know, sunny, light blue. Um, and, and, and again, is this going to help you catch 20 more muskies next year? No. But in certain situations, I definitely think that it can matter. And I think I just explained why. But, but what I do want to add, because this is probably more important, is probably what's more important actually than what you're wearing is actually the kind of the timing of when you time your move. In my opinion, I like to get really low to the water when I figure eight, just because, uh, you know, when I go into my figure eight class, I get all into this, like there's all these, all these little things that matter to get you like the, just the widest, you know, uh, turn that you can get on your figure eight. And one of those things is just the lower you are to the water, the wider your turn will be just because more of the length of that rod, you know, regardless of the length of it is going to be dedicated to being out over the water, you know, basically, uh, you're, you're able to use that full, like you're getting it parallel with the water, the lower you are, the more upright you are, you know, the more like at a 45 or an angle your rod is. So you're losing some of that rod length to make up for your height where when you're, you know, down at water level, it's much wider. Right. But so the, the timing of when you make that or really any other move you make, right. Is, is important. And, you know, obviously if you see a fish coming from way out there, you know, you can get down and in position early, but the majority of the time we don't see muskies till they're pretty close to the boat, you know, especially if you're fishing dirty water or a lot of the good activity times are low light too. So visibility is not as good. Right. But so, you know, when you see them when they're kind of approaching and they're a boat length away or whatever, that's, you know, with the way their eyes are positioned and stuff on their head, like you are in the background right there. And if you're moving, then I feel like you can, you know, be detected. I, I do think they see us and I think they see the boat and I think they don't care. But I think when you move quickly sometimes is, is, is what spooks them. And so the, the way I try to time it, you know, and, and teach people on my boat when I'm guiding them is, is when you're going to make that drop down, you know, unless you're able to make it early on when the fish was way out, is I actually like to bring the bait all the way to the boat, okay, drag it alongside of the boat. And if the fish is relatively hot, it should be close to your bait, right? Like three feet or less. And so basically, as your bait starts to turn out away from the boat and the fish is tracking it, somewhere in there, in that process of that turn there, the, the fish is actually starting to, you know, it's focused on the bait. But as the bait tracks away from the boat, now you're not in front of it anymore. You're behind it. And so if you can kind of time your drop down right there to do it in the process of that turn uh, and waiting till the fish has kind of swam past you, uh, you know, you're, you're much less likely to spook it. You know, if the sun was at your back, it's still possible, but, but, you know, definitely going to increase your chances. And, and that probably actually matters more than what you wear. So I thought it was, you know, important to mention that along with it. I think a big part of this, Josh, it, for me, I learned, wow, I, I think 2000 was the year I bought my first 620 Ranger. With that Ranger, I got a red Ranger jacket. And over a period of time, I started noticing with that red jacket on, um, if I made a movement in the boat going into a figure eight, those fish would flare big time. And so uh, it's really bizarre how, how effective, I mean, that color can really make a big deal. It really can. And I've seen it numerous times. And as I kind of became aware of it, just like you're talking, I made some changes to what color clothes I was wearing. I, I definitely agree with you. And the process of coming into your figure eight, I think you hit it spot on. I mean, you make the movement when that fish is not going to be looking at you. So good examples. Thanks, Brad. All right, Josh. Well, we just want to thank you for coming out, talking to us again. It's always great to have you on the podcast. For people that want to check out the schools that you have to offer, I mean, obviously you just gave them a glimpse right now, but I'm sure you get even more in-depth, and especially because you said some of these classes are upwards of three hours, I believe that's what you said. And 
And why don't you talk a little bit about how they how they can get in, in touch with you for a class, and then why don't you also talk about how they can get in touch with you if they're interested in booking a trip, if you have any openings for this year. So the Muskie Insider classes are all the class information is is available uh, at muskieinsider.com. That's muskie with a Y. It, there's actually a tab that just says virtual classes. And I think Nick might've even put it on our homepage. If you scroll down a bit, you might see it there as well. And yeah, they start on Thursday, March 25th, and they'll be going every Thursday at 7 PM for, uh, for six weeks in a row, basically. We've got some other great musky guides, including Luke Ronestrand, Steve Herbeck, uh, Ryan McMahon. Uh, and actually, you know, several of the things that we, that we kind of touched on, in the podcast today, it will definitely be included, uh, you know, in those classes. It just, you probably learned just from talking to me, right. I'm very, very in depth. So there, there's always more, right. It's like, I, there's just like this big flow chart in my head that I try to keep getting better at, uh, you know, explaining if this, then that. Um, and, and basically I think all these classes are going to be kind of doing a deep dive on different aspects, um, of musky fishing, including open water, late fall musky fishing, Metro fisheries, figure eight technique, the system of breaking down the water, and just you know researching lakes and analytics. Those are all the things we're going to cover. As far as uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me to uh, go fishing this season, my website is promuskyguide.com, but that is the Minnesota spelling of musky with an I-E. Uh, and, and you can find my info there and would love to hear from you on seeing the boat this year. And also, thanks for having me on the podcast, guys. This was fun. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming out. I mean, we, you know, we know that when it's when it comes to this time of year, there's uh, there's really no there's not a whole shortage of time. You know, everything everything's precious. So we appreciate you guys taking time out of your schedule to come talk to us. And uh, you know, I hope you have a great season. If we don't talk to you beforehand, I know that you you know, based off of your list, there's a whole bunch of topics that we can get into, and it's possible we'll even uh, get you back on one time before you guys get out fishing. But if we don't. I hope you have a great season, and if not, we'll talk to you again in, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or so. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, and good luck this season, guys. Hey, you too, Josh. I appreciate your time very much, though. So.